Hello, and welcome to the IBCD Care and Discipleship Podcast. I'm Craig Marshall, and with me today is IBCD Executive Director Jim Neuheiser. And today we're going to be talking about counseling in cases of adultery. Jim, I'd imagine that there are several reactions probably in our audience to this topic. Um, Some people may not think it's very prevalent or that it's kind of an extreme situation. Others may think it's commonplace. How prevalent have you found adultery in your counseling? I've been really saddened by how often in the context of even solid evangelical churches, these cases have come out and it's, it's very grievous. I guess if you would have taken 30 years ago, I would have never imagined that I would be having this experience. I don't think that it's because it's gotten that much worse in 30 years, as much as as an ordinary church member, I didn't see as much as there was, but both in terms, yeah, in terms of uh, the various ways counseling comes to me, adultery cases are a large percentage of what we have to deal with. And it's heartbreaking. Do you think that that is increasing among the church, or do you think it's just more that you get hard cases? I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure there are people accumulating statistics, and as you see, as the culture becomes more corrupt, that we're in Corinth, and so it's not surprising that there's more Corinth-like behavior or even people coming in with the past and they go back to those old sins sometimes just temporarily. So I would think it's increasing just as the culture has become more corrupt sexually. What I have seen increase is more people talking about homosexual sin. But in terms of adultery, it's always gone on. You go back to King David, you go back to the pages of scripture, sexual sin has always been an issue both in terms of actual adultery, lust, and wandering hearts. People also talk about emotional affairs. And so just as we're kind of laying the ground of thinking about adultery, how do you classify those or think about those, um, either as situations are brought to you or as someone throws out that label? That is a really important question. I actually remember a case several years ago where a man confessed that he had a woman at church who was his soulmate, a woman other than his wife, and that he had this emotional closeness with her, and he would pray with her. He said there was no sexual content to that relationship, and he was trying to justify it, saying as long as he didn't commit a physical act of adultery, he was not an adulterer. The way we tried to address this guy from Scripture is just from the very nature of marriage as being a covenant of commitment from you know, Genesis 2.24, the two become one flesh. You, you break off other, you, know, you, you leave other family relationships to join into this marriage relationship. And the physical bond in the violation of which would be physical adultery, but it is symbolic of a covenantal relationship and the most intimate on a, uh, of all human relationships on a personal, emotional, spiritual level which means that his close relationship with this other woman was a violation of the very design of marriage to have that kind of intimacy exclusively with his wife. I also believe such people are self-deceived in other ways and that I've seen cases where someone claims, oh, this is only platonic, it's just we're just like a brother and sister, and then later those emotional 
and then ultimately sexual feelings develop and are expressed, and that is the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews tells us we need to warn each other against that. Another factor would be simply how does the wife or the other spouse feel about this? Does she feel that it's a violation of the marriage covenant? And I can tell you without exception, they do. They recognize the threat that is to their marriage. And when you get married, you want all of that other person. You don't want to just say, well, okay, he's going to, you know, I'll give him my body. He'll give me his body, but he's going to give his heart to somebody else. You want his heart and it's impossible to be in that kind of close emotional relationship with someone of the opposite sex, in my opinion, without being in sin and without violating your own marriage vows. So it sounds like when physical adultery has taken place, there's that's very clear and there's evidence, and then we'll, we'll get to that in a minute of how you proceed from there. But it sounds like you're trying to gauge a lot from the spouse um, how other relationships are working out with the spouse. If there's dissatisfaction there, you're wanting to to bring that guilty spouse along into seeing how their sin has hurt the other person? Right. I mean, and those are other ways to show from Scripture. If a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, he's supposed to make sacrifices to do that which takes care of her, pleases her, shows her that she's loved. Christ's love for the church is an exclusive love, we see in Ephesians 5.25. And it is a very unloving thing to his wife or a wife to her husband to uh, be emotionally involved with someone else. It's also failing, First Peter 3, 7, to treat her with honor, granting her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. First Corinthians, sorry, in Ephesians 5, even for the wife to be in an emotional relationship, that's not showing respect to her husband. That's not submitting to him when he does not want her doing that. It's not Philippians 2, putting the other person ahead of yourself. So, there, there are a multitude of reasons why this is a good idea, and I would just really take it back, or why it's a good idea to stay away from those relationships, and I would really go back to the warning against the deceitfulness of sin, is that a person who's caught up in a relationship like that is trying to justify their sin, and the fact they're having to work so hard at it is one reason why deep down I think they know what they're doing is wrong, and and so you have to appeal to them. I think you can show them from the authority of the Word of God, bring in the other spouse to plead with them. And then sadly, where it leads is not good, just from observing and experience. Well, those are helpful guidelines, just thinking about appropriate relationships with the opposite sex. And I know that's something that's really helpful in marital counseling. And on the one hand, it's encouraging when you do encounter situations like that where there hasn't been actual physical adultery, um, but how do we handle then when a couple comes in and you find out that there has been unfaithfulness? What questions especially are on your mind, you know, data gathering, understanding the situation? What are you thinking when you hear unfaithfulness has happened? I'm going to take one step back to the previous question first, which is it's not enough just to put off the wrong relationship emotionally. We also need to help the couple to achieve the kind of personal intimacy communication that a husband and wife should have where the the spouse who's found the the soulmate outside of the marriage uh, they need to repent of that they need to repent of their lack of effort towards their spouse but both spouses need to work at 
resolving past sin that hasn't been dealt with, seeking forgiveness, being reconciled, peacemaking, and then positive, as you talked before, pull the weeds and then teach them how to grow the flowers so that they can enjoy the personal intimacy and oneness that they're tempted to look for outside. Sometimes they'll make an excuse, well, our personalities just don't mesh right and we're different from each other. And I can sympathize with that. But what Jesus says, what God is joined, let no man separate. And so he wants you to learn to love and how to learn to be loved by someone different from you and to build that up as much as you can and to give up and just say, well, I'll just go find this somewhere else is a sinful and dangerous response. Now to your other question. Um, when people come in where there's been a case of actual physical adultery, uh, this is crisis counseling. You are typically dealing with two people who are hopeless. Sometimes they're only going to give you one shot to try to convince them that anything can be done and that they should come back. Uh, just starting with data gathering, you want to know first what actually has happened, what is actually known, uh, how was it discovered. There is a wide range of situations with which you can be dealing, and the nature of that situation has a lot to do with how you're going to address it in counsel as you go. It could be I had a case of a guy who went to a family event out of town, didn't take his wife, and he had like a one-night hookup with an old girlfriend, and then five years later he confesses this, as opposed to someone who has been in an affair for over a year, and they've been making promises to divorce their present spouses and marry each other. Uh, there's a wide range, seeing a prostitute. So there's a wide range of possible situations. None of them is hopeless. We've seen the Lord help people in all of these, but to understand the nature of it, it also can be very significant how it was discovered. I've seen a couple of cases. In both cases, it was women who slipped into one act of adultery, went straight home and told their husbands, and then came and were seeking help. That is unusual. I've yet to see that with a man. Maybe someday I will. Usually people get busted. They get caught. And the Lord can work through that. David was busted. He didn't just confess. He had to be confronted by Nathan and was resistant. Uh, that's the more common situation with which you're dealing. Uh, when you find the person has been busted, he's been caught, Oftentimes, as you're doing the data gathering, the sin is minimized, and it's almost like peeling an onion, and sometimes it is over multiple sessions, multiple weeks, where you find out that what was initially admitted or discovered was only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I've had cases where even a year later, uh, the scope of the sin was proven to be multiples of what we originally thought it was. So, but again, you need to, I guess, in terms of data gathering also, is what is the attitude of the two parties involved? Is the guilty party repentant? Sometimes there is such a strong emotional tie to that 
relationship is they are at best double-minded. Also, the guilty party probably has been for a long time having to justify what they've been doing by judging the other individual and rationalizing their behavior. They have hardened their hearts against God like David in Psalm 32 when I kept silent about my sin and then he he refused to repent for so long and he was miserable and he was distant from God. And so even when one is, especially when one has been caught, but even if one confesses, it's not like suddenly a heart that's been hardened for months is supple and soft and, and repentant. That's often a process. But you know, where is that person? Are they serious about turning away from the sin and repenting and trying to restore their marriage? And then likewise with the innocent spouse, and I'll say innocent in parenthesis in the sense that every spouse has sin. Her sin does not justify his sin. But the one who didn't commit adultery, uh, does that person hold out hope? And sometimes you have almost this initial reaction to the crisis where, of course, I forgive you. I just want everything to be better. Uh, that may not last, but that can be it. Or sometimes there's just, I've had it, I'm done. Usually, as you're doing the data gathering, what I try to do is, most importantly, is offer some hope. And I've had people who have gone through this and things have gotten a lot better. And I asked, well, what helped? And they said, one thing that really helped us in the first session is you gave us hope that can be especially from the Word of God, but also just how God has worked in the past. And then to buy time. And by buying time, I simply mean don't make a decision about what you're going to do with this marriage or the rest of your life tonight. Just agree to enter into a process and see what God may do and, and take it bit by bit. So it sounds like, you know, just to boil down what you said, so part of it would be find out what happened, so just kind of get the facts. Part of it is assess the hearts of each involved. Is one of them particularly hard? Are they repentant or soft? And then also give hope for sure and buy time. Like those could be kind of four things just popping through our head as That's a good summary. someone comes to you. Okay, so, so that kind of gets you through the immediate crisis of you just found that out. And then what categories are we are you thinking in terms of for both the quote-unquote innocent party and for the adulterer of what you're going to want to seek to help them with in their hearts? First, for the adulterer, I want to help that person to see, like David had says in Psalm 51, against you and you only I have sinned, is that he tends to look horizontally in terms of what he did to his spouse or she did to her spouse. And, and that is an issue. But the much bigger issue is their sin against God, and they need to be reconciled to God. In Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, David's psalms of confession and repentance and, and restoration to the Lord. And the hope also that they give is that, you know, when I kept silent about my sin, my, your, your hand was heavy upon me, but then I confessed my sin and you forgave the guilt of my sin, the psalmist says, David says. So uh, giving them hope of forgiveness, but they're not ready to reconcile with their spouse until they're reconciled with God. And, and they did this not because of whatever their spouse did, but they did this, it's much more reflection on their relationship with God. So there needs to be repentance before God. Uh, going to 2 Corinthians 7, we actually have a worksheet which is distinguishing between true and false repentance. There's a worldly sorrow. Most people are sad when they get busted, when they get caught. But a godly sorrow in the works we talk about, it's something where you're concerned about your sin, not the consequences. You're concerned about the other person and not yourself. And you're patient and about being restored instead of impatient. And so 
helping that person work towards repentance. And my experience has been repentance is a process. Initially, you're just trying to get them to agree to embark on that road of repentance, a road of restoration to God. And they may not, they, they may have such cold hearts having gone so far down this road. It's going to take time. And so you just want to walk with them step by step through that process. Uh, but initially it's going to be seeking forgiveness from God. When you're making progress, they're then obviously going to the spouse and seeking forgiveness from the other party. Uh, the peacemaker seven A's of confession are outstanding just to make sure the confession is really thorough, to you know, not to allow any if, but, or maybe to admit specifically. There are you know, so many things that are common in terms of the big sin is not the sex, typically. And I'm, every time when the innocent spouse hears me say this, they nod, if not shout, yes. The big sin is typically the lies, the deceit, the living of a lie. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about don't lie to each other because we are members of each other. And for any adulterous relationship, there are hundreds of lies, along with other sins as well. But I'll often hear the innocent spouse say, I, I can forgive the sex, but can I ever trust this person again? And so that's a sin that needs to be dealt with very seriously. And then in terms of the innocent party, I've already said that one of the main things I'm trying to do is just to get this person not to make up their minds. And they may have friends already who are saying, get rid of the bum. Uh, family members who care about her and want to protect her from being hurt further. We have a Savior who is willing to be hurt in order to be reconciled to us. And so I think that should encourage the innocent spouse that this may be the greatest opportunity she will ever have to show Christ-like love, grace, and forgiveness to another person. And that Christ is not expecting of him, the innocent spouse, any more than he's already done for him. This doesn't mean immediately you forgive and you give up all rights and everything's go on as normal, but to be at least willing to see what God may do, how God may change the heart of the person, God may change your heart. And then the other thing that immediately comes to mind as being extremely important would be to see, like Galatians 6, as if someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, that your role here, you know, what, what your spouse has done was not primarily a reflection on his relationship with you. It's as, as a reflection on his relationship with Christ that got into a terrible place in order for this to happen. And your role in this is to be used as an instrument of God to restore this person to Christ. And, and that is what God has called you to do and, and to prayerfully consider that, to be a, a reconciler, but on that level. And the, the other thing I would bring up, and it may not be immediate, but I think it's also important that the so-called innocent spouse may still have issues they need to confess and seek forgiveness from the very guilty spouse. None of that excuses the sexual sin. Uh, one spouse who is unavailable sexually doesn't excuse the other spouse committing adultery or finding a prostitute but they still can confess those sins and it would be appropriate for them to do so.
So when you say that the innocent spouse has an opportunity, you know, to forgive and should forgive, and that's a, a picture of what Christ has done for us, should that innocent spouse always forgive? How are they to think through that situation? That's a great question. And just as we, we can't force the innocent spouse at a certain time to forgive or not to forgive, you know, the, the Bible gives them rights. Jesus says that in Matthew 19, that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so my understanding of that text is that the innocent spouse has a right to end the marriage because of that breach of the marriage covenant. I will stress, we always strive to counsel through the situation so that forgiveness can be granted and restoration and reconciliation can take place. But there are cases in which the guilty spouse is not repentant, and I'm thankful to God that she has the right biblically to end the marriage and, and the freedom to go, and she is not obligated to treat him as forgiven if he doesn't repent. The scripture says when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, we're to forgive as, as God has forgiven us. Jesus says in Luke that if, if someone sins against you and they repent, you forgive them. If the other person is not repentant, it's not a license to be embittered, but you're not required to treat them as if they hadn't done it, to forgive them, to keep the marriage going. If they, they're not sorry, you have the right to have a forgiving heart, a willingness to forgive, but you have a right to uh, be free of that immoral person who won't repent. It gets more complicated when the, the guilty party says they're repentant, and the innocent party may say, I don't think he's repentant, I think he's just saying it. And you could go through testing what is real repentance. But it, as I understand it, that person has the freedom to make that call, and I don't infallibly know the guilty party's heart. I will play for delay, I will try to work with the guilty party to work towards repentance. But there have been cases where this is the third or fourth time this has happened in five years. And so we're not, that the innocent party is not required to say, sure, I'll take you back. They, they may choose to say, well, there's a sense in which in my heart I have a forgiving attitude. I'm not going to transactionally remove the consequence of what you've done and continue in this bad marriage relationship. There may be cases as well where we think the, there have been cases we've seen where we really believe the guilty party is repentant and the innocent party is struggling with forgiveness and they can feel a lot of pressure like, well, you're saying I'm unchristlike and, you know, and you know, I, you're saying I have to forgive. And I can't demand that you accept the other person's profession of repentance give up your right to divorce. I can't force them to do that, and I think they can feel unduly pressured. And I also have to admit, I don't know what the future is hold, will hold. It may be this person will commit adultery over and over again if you forgive them. So all I can do is try to persuade them to prayerfully consider it, to wait and see if there is real change taking place. But I cannot judge them for using a right that I see the Bible gives them.
those are some helpful categories to think through. And obviously these situations are really complicated and, and then bring in a ton of other marital counseling um, basics um, to be incorporated throughout. One of the things I was wondering as we talk through these issues are what are some common pitfalls in these scenarios that uh, counselors who are listening to this, pastors who are listening to this should be aware of? Maybe mistakes you've made or that you've heard about being made as people get involved in these crisis adultery situations. I've already mentioned one, <clears throat> which can be the innocent spouse forgiving and taking this other spouse back before that person is really repentant. And it doesn't really fix things. I, I think that obviously, like Jesus talks about, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out in Matthew 5, radical amputation is that there needs to be a complete and total break off of any relationship, commitment, interaction with the person with whom you committed adultery. And you just have to entrust that person to God. Your, your sympathy should be first with God, then with your spouse. And this person, like Proverbs says, is a stranger to your family, to your bed. They don't belong there. How do you slow that down in a counseling session? You know, so you have the guilty party and, and he or she is seeming very sorry the other person is seeming ready to forgive and just kind of wants this to be over. It seems kind of strange to jump in and say, wait, 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 don't forgive. How, how right. have you found that to work? Well, this is where we can't be legalistic in counseling in that I have in cases thought that it would be wise for the innocent spouse to give the guilty spouse some time to process things, to really go through the process of seeking forgiveness more thoroughly. Uh, before totally forgiving and putting this as something they would not ever consider using against them in terms of their right to divorce. And we always try to avoid divorce, but I think there's wisdom in making sure this person shows signs of real repentance. I think sometimes it's a fear of being alone, a fear of the embarrassment of being a divorced person, a fear for how am I going to take care of my children or other issues like that. So I would, but it, but if they choose to do this, if they choose to say, no, I'm going to forgive it. I'm never going to bring it up again. I'm going to, you know, invite him back into the bedroom and just, we're going to carry on. Uh, that is their freedom to make that choice. And I've actually been amazed. I had a case I was overseeing recently where a husband was caught in adultery and uh, the counselor was asking, well, and, you know, so when did, in, you know, did you continue with intimacy? And she said, well, no, I didn't want it to make it worse for him. So she just, you know, carried on and tried to show him grace. And I just, I felt like I, I admire that grace so much. And it seems like now over a year later, she's still doing very well at showing such grace. Um, but there, again, there's the other thing you've already mentioned is the person who's been caught. You mentioned a scenario where they say they're really sorry, and the question is: There is a Second Corinthians seven warns about a worldly sorrow. I got caught, but godly sorrow will be actually backed up by a change of behavior <laughs> and a radical amputation and addressing the issues that led to this to begin with. And so a burst of emotional sorrow is not adequate to solve this problem. One other pitfall I would mention also would be 
to just carry on without addressing the issues in the marriage that led to this to begin with. My goal in restoring a couple when there's been adultery is not that they can resume the mediocre marriage they had, which contributed to this great sin, but to rebuild a marriage that would be much closer to the ideals of the Word of God, the relationship of Christ and the church, so they could have a better-than-ever marriage. And perhaps even one day they'll look back and say, even though it was terrible what happened, we can see how God used it for good to really make our marriage more of what God would have it to be. And that comes in a lot early on. You know, one of the first four things you kind of mentioned to be looking for is to give hope. So much of that hope is painting that picture that their marriage could be better than ever as they follow God's way and the gospel works in their marriage, right? Amen. And that is something I would always want to say in the first session. My, my goal is not just to get you back to the way you were the day before you committed adultery. My goal would be to make your marriage more of what the Lord wants our marriages to be than it's ever been before with the hope that God would use even this awful thing for your good. It's an amazing thing. And we have the privilege at IBCD many times and people in their churches of seeing God work in these horrible situations and um, make beautiful marriages out of them that are a testimony to his grace. There's a lot more that could be said about this topic, and I'm sure we'll be revisiting it uh, at other times, but we should probably wrap this up for now. One of the ways you can learn more about this, we have audios on our website that deal with counseling in cases of abuse, and then also at our Summer Institute, which is coming up in June, June 23rd to through 25th in San Marcos, California. We'll be covering the topic of disordered desires, bringing grace to modern sexuality. And I know dealing with adultery will be one of the topics we're exploring there as well. So we want to thank you for listening. Jim, thanks for your time. And um, we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.